Welcome to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. Whether you realize it or not, you are resilient. It's your birthright. As you take in your next breath, know this truth. It's not only about your capacity to overcome difficult situations, but it's about your courage to do the necessary work to heal, learn, grow, and move forward. What you gain is invaluable wisdom. And it's through these hard stumbles in life that we often discover a new purpose that aligns with our spirit. My name is Fabio De Silva Fernandez, Reiki master, mindfulness coach, and mystical explorer. Join me weekly as the Stumbling Spirit podcast highlights the lives of extraordinary people like you, sharing transformative stories and beneficial practices of resilience to guide you on your wellness journey. Mark Peacock has worked in the entertainment industry for more than 25 years as an actor, drag performer, producer, and reality TV writer, with credits on popular shows such as Canada's Next Top Model and The Amazing Race Canada. Mark also scripted an acclaimed short film called Bunny, which screened internationally and holds special meaning to him. Today we talk about the realities within reality, Mark's creative vocation, and the pivotal moments that have helped shape him as a person and an artist. It's my privilege to welcome my friend, Mark Peacock, on the show. Hi, Mark. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. How about you? Very, very well. Thank you. I have to admit that reality TV is a guilty pleasure of mine, and I usually lean towards shows that relate to love or food. So can you explain to us, even though we are consumers of it, what is reality TV? That, that is a gigantic question. What is reality TV? Because you can go back to what is the basis of reality TV? Like where did reality TV come from? Quite simply, reality TV has been around as long as TV has been on. A talk show is a type of reality television. A game show is a type of reality television. Then you have unscripted dramas, which is your Real Housewives, where what I always called real people, semi-artificial situations. Uh, and then there's rea- reality competition shows, which are your amazing race, drag race. And then you have your lifestyle shows, which uh, you know you often find on HGTV. A lot of the real estate shows you classify as like a lifestyle reality. Well, when I was doing research for this interview, I was for sure thinking that reality shows started in the 90s, but then it reminded me that Candid Camera was a popular reality show, and I loved Candid Camera. Yeah, and if you go back to something like, if you look at Real Housewives, you know, it comes from, they did a show back in the early 70s, I think it was called American Family, and they went in and they just documented one family. And it was really fascinating because one of the kids was gay. And this is, we're talking early 70s here. I think we're talking like 72 or whatever. So this was quite uh, radical for that time period. So just based on your experience, having done different kinds of reality shows, do you think reality TV could ever or can ever capture reality? Of course, it is capturing reality. Essentially, the way I explain my job to most people is when you make a television show that's scripted, you have a writer in a writer's room and they write out a script. Then they hire actors to play the parts in that script. And then they have a director who directs them and then they shoot everything. And then it's handed off to an editor. And then the editor takes the script along with the director's direction and the performances and puts together 
what we see as a scripted show on television. The way reality TV works is they come up with a, a situation, a premise. We'll use Amazing Race because that's what I'm working on right now. You know, you have start off with 10 teams are competing to win $250,000. And then they go out and they shoot people doing stuff. What I do is I watch all the footage. This is as a story editor for reality TV. I watch all the footage and then I create a script on what I see and what I hear. Everything on The Amazing Race that happens is real, but the game that they're in is, is constructed. Production creates the, the premise for people to the arena, let's call it the arena, that they're operating in. And everything that those people do within those parameters is real. Everything they say is real. Our job in post-production is just to tell uh, a coherent story based on what we're hearing. So you're basically going through the footage and you are identifying what are the major themes of things that are happening within this story and you're identifying what they are and then you choose, okay, well, this is how we are going to piece this show together based on what is emerging naturally in the show. Yeah, and people are not, they're not, what they say is not manipulated or altered. It's cleaned up, but their reaction to something is always the truth. Do you think that with the advent of reality TV, I mean, you made the point that it's been around forever since the beginning of TV, but obviously there's a saturation of it right now. Do you think that people have become more compassionate or desensitized to what is going on in people's lives as a result of the emergence of reality TV? The, the thing that I've noticed from working in, in reality for the last 16 years is that people coming onto reality shows to be on them used to be somewhat naive. People get surprised that it's a half hour show. Why does it take three days to shoot it? Everybody that's grown up with this stuff on TV and it's been part of their lives, like the whole Generation Z and a certain amount of millennials that have been exposed to a lot of it, come onto these shows and they're quite savvy. Also, because our world has changed so much, we all have access to so much technology now. Like we can shoot our own reality shows on an iPhone if that's what you choose to do. A lot of people that come on these shows already are, you know, are YouTubers and or you know have an Instagram profile or they've been, you know, their parents have been taking videos of them for their entire lives. So the comfort level has shifted a lot. It was interesting when reality TV first became like this is the beginning of Survivor. It was around when Survivor started that people were concerned that that it would take over and nobody would want it would take over too much and people wouldn't be interested in scripted stuff and it was going to you know change the face of the business and make you know and all these people would be out of work because of it and that hasn't happened. You know what I mean? Now we just have an incredible amount of content that we can actually consume. It's just now we have a huge reality sector plus a huge scripted sector. It's almost like when people thought that uh, when Blockbuster first came on the scene in the 80s, like, oh my God, home video, people will never go to those movies again. You know, that was the big fear. And then, of course, people still went to the movies. People also went to videos, but they still went to the movies. You know what I mean? And that's 40 years later since, you know, we had home video and people are still going to the movies. You won a Canadian Screen Award for Best Writing on The Amazing Race Canada. What are the challenges of working on that kind of show? Uh, the biggest challenge of working on something like The Amazing Race is the quantity of footage. So it works out to be 44 minutes and 50 seconds long. That is your episode for broadcast television. 
And because you have 10 teams that are out shooting 11 hours of footage, sometimes nine hours, I'd say on average, they each shoot nine hours per episode. There's well over 90 hours of footage that needs to be processed and then whittled down to the most entertaining story, conceptually uh, coherent 45 minutes that you can get out of 90 hours. So it takes a large team to make all this happen. Yes, my name is on that award, but it's not just my award. I mean, first of all, there's actually two other names with me, so it's actually three of us won it. But um, beyond that, everybody contributes to each episode from the assistant editors through the editors, the team editors, the lead editors, the story editors. Like, And we work as this giant team because each episode has to link to the next episode. Amazing Rice is like this wonderful puzzle that if you know if you think you know you get a puzzle for a thousand pieces and it's like a you know a stamp with this intricate detail and you have to put it together that is putting together a season of the amazing race if you think about it each piece, puzzle piece being a sound bite thousands of sound bites all being selected and put into an order so that it all makes sense do you have any thoughts on what kind of reality tv show we could see that isn't already out there are you looking for pitches, Fabio? Uh, <laughs> I don't have any. Well, actually, you know it's funny you should say that because um, uh, my partner brought up um, the weekend we were watching the King's Coronation, and <clears throat> he was saying that uh, apparently, you know, one of the King Charles' mandate is the people that live in Kensington Palace. I'm not a monarchist, so I don't know too much about all this stuff, but the cousins and whoever lives there that has been getting an allowance from the monarchy, he wants to apparently stop this um, allowance. And that means they all have to get jobs. So there's a great reality series that I'd love to see. (laughs) (laughs) New peasants of Great Britain or... (laughs) Once, you know, they figure out how to get people on the way to Mars, like... That would be the ultimate reality show. And it'll have a long, like it takes, what, three years to fly to Mars? So it's a good three seasons you get out of that show. Got to make sure it's a good show. (laughs) (laughs) Got to cast it right. (laughs) If it's canceled after season one, they have two more years to Mars. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But I think that, it wouldn't surprise me if that kind of thing actually did happen. Where I was like, I mean, they are talking about sending people to Mars and like, you know, everyone's going to be fascinated by it. And everybody, we have, we have the capability to technologically send video footage. I also think, I, and I don't know if I've, if I've seen anything around this, but like, I feel it as a person in their 50s. You know, technologically, I'm starting to get left behind. Like every time there's something new introduced to me at work, some other kind of like platform or whatever, my immediate reaction is resistance. I'm like, ugh, I should learn something else. Why can't we just email each other? Do I have to slack you? I mean, like, you know, every place you work, there's a new place, like that new kind of like chat technology, like, you know, monkey fiber or whatever. I'd love to see like some kind of reality show like that. (laughs) Or they haven't done a show around, a show around centenarians. There's not a lot of shows about older people. I'll, I'll just put it that way because and it's got to do with advertising dollars. Well, so. they probably will be because we're an aging population. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see how that morphs. So about a decade ago, you wrote and produced an acclaimed short film called Bunny. Can you explain 
the significance of that film to you? The important aspect of that particular film was show, showing older gay men on screen. I mean, subsequently, there was a film with uh, Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth, which is basically the same topic, you know, an older couple in which one suffers from Alzheimer's, right? And starts to lose their memory. A bunny's just exactly the same premise as that. Uh, basically a story of an older gay male couple in which one of the guys is starting to suffer from dementia and the impact that it has on his partner. Me and the, the people that I was working with felt like there wasn't a lot of older gay men being shown in media. This is going back 10 years. I feel like things are starting to shift now. But at that time, you know, at a lot of the gay festivals, you saw a lot of younger stories being told. I had to actually research because I um, I don't have any family members that actually had dementia. So I I spoke to a number of people who uh, had parents that uh, that they've dealt with that kind of thing, and I also had them read the script. I had it vetted to make sure that um, the behavior made sense. Your background in the arts is multifaceted. So you have a degree in fine arts with a specialization in music. You have an honors degree in radio and television, and you also studied musical theater. What calls to you the most in terms of creative expression and why? Back in 2014, so almost 10 years ago, um, I felt I was at a crossroads with my career. And um, I saw a wonderful coach who asked me the question, what would your life look like if there was no limitations five years from now? What would you be doing? And I was like, well, I enjoy writing and I do enjoy producing. I also love performing. Variety was important to me. So I basically have created a lifestyle in which I get to do bits and pieces of everything. I am the Jack and Jill of all artistic trades. And they all give me joy. I feel as a person, I can't um, do anything, one thing for too long because then I, I like the repetition of it, I start to get bored. So I love the fact that I, I have, I'm very privileged and very lucky to have, you know, this wide range of things that I get to do. You know, this week alone, I am working on Amazing Race. I am working on the, still finishing up the show that I worked on before. I have a writing rehearsal with the, you know my, my drag group uh, B Girls on Tuesday night. I am I have a wardrobe uh, call tomorrow for a commercial that I'm shooting on Wednesday or Thursday. I enjoy all aspects of my artistic expression. Not one stands out as being stronger than the other. The two areas what I feel that I really haven't brought up to like the best accomplish something that I feel proud of is acting and writing. So I will continue to explore those areas. And you are exploring those areas in B-Girls. I'm glad that you brought that up because you've been a part of this comedy troupe for the past or more than two decades playing the pink ditzy bombshell barbecue. Can you describe the B-Girls and why is it so important to you to be a part of this group after so many years? I think our website says Canada's premier drag troupe. So we consider ourselves to not be, uh, we're more in the range of Priscilla and, you know, rest in peace, Dame Edna, uh, in the sense that um, we don't lip sync and we work as a team. 
So rarely will any of us perform individually. We always almost always perform as a as a trio. We write our own material and we sing live, and it's a combination of comedy and music. The reason that it's so important to me is less about performance and more about family. I have worked with the other two since 1997. I have been friends with uh, one of them since 1991. Uh, they're like my sisters or brothers, depends on what we're wearing. We get paid, but if you, if you count the amount of hours we do compared to the amount of money we get paid, we don't make that much money. So we do it for that creative expression because it's it's for me as an insecure performer, barbecue my character was a great way for me to express myself in a manner that I felt less intimidated because once I put, and it came out of my dad, actually, my dad saying to me, well, no one would ever recognize you. And that gave me this, this bravery and this, this courage that I didn't have, which to this very day, I still fight against. I've gotten stronger at auditioning as a male, you know, as myself, songs, the mask and the wig. But for me to sing without the costume is still a huge hurdle for me. I recently sang at a, an open mic music theater night kind of thing. And literally the adrenaline was so high, it took me two hours after I sang to come down. And it, But not good adrenaline. It was like that bad, like, oh my God, that was terrible. Like the, the amount of inner critic stuff that comes with that. To the point where I felt, almost traumatized where I couldn't concentrate on anybody else's performance because I kept thinking about how much I made a fool out of myself, if that makes sense. Where does that come from? Uh, my inner critic? I grew up in a household where my mother was distracted, involved in her own struggles, and I had a, a very critical father. No matter what I did as a child, my dad would always find the critical side. He was the type of father that if I came home with a test from school and I got nine out of 10, my dad's reaction would be, well, what'd you get wrong? Why did you get that wrong? So there wasn't a lot of celebration of us as kids of our abilities or like nurturing. I mean, we're always a product of, you know, our, our upbringing. And my dad brought his own stuff to it and then projected it onto me. It was cute because once my dad retired, he joined uh, a community theater and I saw him in a production of The Importance of Being Earnest. And he had a very small part and he, I think he had, you know, maybe five or six lines or whatever. And he was so noticeably nervous that I felt like I was going to throw up in the audience for him. And that just tells me that he had this very strong inner critic, which means that he probably wasn't given the right amount of validation as a child. And then he grew up to be a parent. And then, you know, this is, this is where these things come from, right? People just replicate behavior until someone goes, okay, what am I doing? How can I stop this? How can I overcome this? It sounds like you embodying barbecue is a way for you to soften that inner critic. Well, no, uh, I wouldn't say it softens the inner critic. Barbecue was a mask, is a mask. It's like when I put on that outfit, I'm not Mark Peacock anymore. I am Barbara Quigley, a.k.a. Barbecue. And Barbecue does things and says things that Mark Peacock doesn't. It's such a way of being in a different reality for me that often I've met people as Barbecue and then they'll see me out of drag and they know who I am and they'll come up and say, oh, hey, and I will have no clue who they are. 
it's a defense mechanism. I would say that my drag was a defense mechanism. So I'm in a heightened state. So when I meet somebody, I'm not genuinely connecting with them to say I would as me, Mark. How do the other two players in the troupe balance that out for you when you perform? Oh, well, I mean, on stage, I haven't ever had a desire to perform as barbecue by myself because I wouldn't want that amount of responsibility. I can't handle it vocally. So from a musical point of view, I wouldn't be able to handle it. And immediately, it's much easier for me to play off somebody than it is for me just to do it myself. It's like strength in numbers. Being on stage with the other two, I feel like I have a support system. You know, they're metaphorically holding my hand up there. And if we're singing, I'm not singing alone. I got two other people that I can sing with. You know what I mean? So in university, you had an attack and discovered that you had Crohn's disease. So how did that impact you? And also, can you explain how you've been able to manage this disease throughout your life? I was first diagnosed with Crohn's uh, in first year university, at the end of first year university. I had been struggling all the way through my high school years with, with chronic intestinal cramps that kept getting worse and worse and worse and worse. And finally, in the second half of first year university, I went from a staggering 110 pounds, which was my normal weight, down to 90. I basically had diarrhea every day for four months. You know, they started to notice that maybe they should do some tests. And they discovered that I had a foot and a half of my intestine was severely affected by Crohn's disease. It's uh, an inflammatory bowel disease. Most people know about colitis. Colitis is the inner layer of the colon is affected by inflammatory bowel disease. Crohn's is the entire wall of your intestine, which can go anywhere from your mouth right through to the other end. And any part of it can be affected. And it's, it's ulcerative, just like colitis. So mine was localized in my small intestine. That's where the worst part of it was. And when I was diagnosed in 19, they first just put me in the hospital and they give you steroids. And I may have weighed 100 pounds, but my face looked like I was a 250 pound football player because everything you swell up. It's also when I came out, it was like, it was just a crazy period. In third university, they realized that the small intestine was compressing the ureter, which is the tube from your kidney to your bladder, because I was having a kidney stone once every three months or so. And they're like, okay, I think we have to take this out. In the spring of 1989, they removed the, the foot and a half. And when you have this kind of bowel surgery, they always stick an NG tube, a nasal gastric tube. It goes up your nose and down into your stomach. And it drains out all the bile so that your intestines can heal. And usually at day three or four, depending, they remove the tube because you have to sort of get on with life. And when they took my tube out, Unfortunately for me, the bowel separated. And so it leaked into my abdomen and I went septic. A week later after my original operation, they cut me open again and they basically had to rinse all of my internal organs because they were all covered in green bile. I was put into intensive care at that point because I was in intensive care for about a week. And apparently, and I mean, of course, I was like completely out of it. I was so sick with being septic and uh, the amount of drugs they were giving me, whatever. I only found out after the fact that my chances at that point were only 50-50. I do remember my parents standing over me in intensive care, just like bawling their faces off. And I, had, and I was intubated, so I couldn't speak to them. And that experience really changed me as a person. And it was, it, and it was beyond 
just my experience, it was the pain that I saw around me. In the same time that I was in the ICU, there was a, a young woman similar in age to me who was suffering from sickle cell anemia. She may have been two arm lengths away, like mine and hers away, but I could hear her. And one night there was a code. They started broadcasting four o'clock in the morning and like everybody, all the nurses and the interns, everybody in the hospital runs into the room. And I didn't know what was happening. I was freaked out and they were working on her and she had stopped breathing or whatever. And, and after they had got her stabilized, the nurse came in, I was freaked out and she held my hand and we both just, she was crying, I was crying. And I was like, what's going to happen to her? Is she going to live? Because it was my first brush with mortality. Eventually, the the, uh, the girl with sickle cell was switched to a different hospital that specialized in it. I could take better care of her. But I found out from the nurse that quite often with people that suffer from that illness don't live a full life. And I went into a very dark place for about six weeks after that, because I realized that in life, not everything works out. Sometimes people get sick and they don't survive. I would say that's the saddest I've ever been. And it took me a while to recover and to realize that sometimes bad stuff happens to good people, but we have to keep moving forward. There are people who have suffered way worse than me, and I admire their strength and their resilience to keep pushing forward. You reflected on your mortality back then, but you've also had to reflect on your mortality in relation to some recent losses to family members. Could you speak a little bit about that? Well, I'm going to tie it back to the the drag thing. And I did mention that, you know, one of the, the important things to me about staying with the B-girls and being with them is because they're like family to me. Because unfortunately, most of my immediate family has passed away. I lost my mother and my brother within a year and a half of each other. And then a few, a few years later, my father. How do I feel about mortality? It still scares me. I don't want to go because there's so much stuff that I still want to do. But it is a fact that at any second, any one of us, our life could be over. But we can't think about that 24-7. So we kind of just sort of push forward doing stuff. It's really about finding the balance, right? Recognizing how lucky we are to have this experience, but not get you know, paralyzed in the darker side of mortality, which is you know, the fear or the, the, the sadness or the, the, the grief. Do you have advice for any creatives out there who want to pursue a career in the arts? Yeah. My biggest piece of advice for anybody that wants to, and this doesn't matter if it's the arts, like whatever it is you want to accomplish, like whatever it is, there are always going to be people who say that you can't do it. But if you really want to, just try. If it brings you joy, just go for it and be gentle with yourself. Try not to let your inner critic stop you from doing the stuff that you actually really want to do. Fear can be our biggest detractor, but it can also be your biggest motivator. It's finding that balance. Everything in life is about finding the balance. There's going to be times when you don't want to do it or you don't, you feel like it's too hard. If it's something that you really feel, then explore it. Explore it and celebrate every little baby step. If you think about a show like American Idol, American Idol makes you feel like you know, you can just be a small town person with a big voice and then you go on the show and suddenly you're a huge celebrity. So it almost makes it feel like that kind of success is instantaneous. Well, maybe for some people it is, but for, you know, the majority of people, 
who has succeeded at things in their lives, they've worked incredibly hard. Do it. Do it. If it brings you joy, just freaking do it. What does resilience mean to you? I mean, I think it means something different for everybody. But for me, it's, it's the concept of staying strong within yourself, even when it hurts. Also, it's, I think people often associate vulnerability with weakness, but vulnerability is the strongest thing you can actually do. Keep moving ahead, even if it's just a millimeter a day. You're not alone. Even when you feel like you are completely alone, you know, I, I mean, I, I, I complain about technology and I complain about, you know, it's all so complicated and whatever. But I, I think in a way, you know, everything comes with good and bad. And I think one of the, the great things about technology, and I think that the pandemic illustrated this, was it allowed us to stay connected. And we're all united by pain. We're all united by loss. We're all united by grief. I, I just believe that everybody has resilience. We just need support sometimes to find it in ourselves. What are your practices of resilience? Western medicine, especially 40 years ago, said to me, well, you have Crohn's disease. You will have that for the rest of your life. You will always be sick. You will, you know, it might go into remission, but it'll come back. And there was something in my 22-year-old brain that said, screw that. I'm going to do everything I can, explore everything I can so that I never have to go through this again. I saw a naturopath. I did massage therapy. I did Alexander Technique. I did psychotherapy. I still do hypnotherapy. <laughs> like I, I just started exploring. I did Reiki. I explored every venue that I could to find health, all kinds of things. I changed my diet. I figured out that exercise was, you know, helped reduce stress, that Crohn's was related to anxiety. So if I lowered my anxiety, I also made choices about my life. I was like, I want to live the most authentic lifestyle that I can. And this would have been two years after the operation. And I graduated university and I was working at a bank. And my dad said, oh, you work at a bank, so you could stay there. You know, you'll go up to the ranks fairly quickly. And I thought, yeah, that's logical. But you know what? I don't, this was 1991. And I'm like, I don't feel like I can be out at work. So I have to hide that whole part of my person. Like you have to pretend that I'm straight. And I'm like, that doesn't sit right with me. And I don't enjoy this. That's why I auditioned for music theater school, because I thought I always kind of wanted to do that. That looks like fun. There's a sacrifice that goes with this. I mean, I don't own a house. I don't have that security that my dad always wanted me to have because I kind of made choices around kind of exploring stuff that really was interesting to me. Practices that I use for resilience now is, is my morning routine. So my morning routine consists of morning meditation. And then after that, I write in my journal. I do one page of what I'm grateful for, what I liked about the day, what I appreciated from the day before, what I'd like to see from today, among a few other things. I do a reading, and then I made up cue cards of things I want to manifest. And then I have, I made myself a vision book. In my vision book, I cut out things of like what I want to achieve in my life, along with like sayings, whatever. And I created a page for each aspect, you know, be it home life, be it career, whatever. 
And then I, I have a list of 35 affirmations that I say to myself. It's positive statements about me with the universe, essentially. And how do these practices of resilience benefit you? I don't know. It's, it's hard to quantify, but I'll say this much. I enjoy my routine. It gives me a focal point and a stability to the start of every day. If my day starts off out of balance, then I'm out of balance for the entire day. This helps me balance out my life, gives me a good strong starting point. It's not like it's a you know a magic potion or anything, but it helps me feel, I think it helps build my own confidence. How can people contact you if they want to reach you? Uh, if you want to reach me, they could, they could find me on LinkedIn just under my name, Mark Peacock. Thank you, Mark. Thank you for sharing your story. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom. Well, Fabio, thank you for having me. I appreciate you listening. Thank you for listening to The Stumbling Spirit, Contemplations on the Path of Resilience. This is Fabio da Silva Fernandez. Join me again next week for another episode of transformative stories and beneficial practices to guide you on your wellness journey. If you wish, you can follow and DM me on Instagram at The Stumbling Spirit. Until next time, take a deep breath and another step forward on your path of resilience. Hey.